1: Hello and welcome to episode 307 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me this week and I'm really sorry for the delay. I became a little unwell just ahead of our Manchester show this week and went rapidly downhill since, but I'm now feeling much, much better. Talking of Manchester, it was so lovely to meet so many of you and what a fantastic night we had. Let's see you again soon, I hope. Today's story comes from the south coast of England it's a murder story. It's got so many twists. See what you think. Before we get to the story let me begin as always by thanking all my supporters at Patreon but especially the new members of our community. That is Janie Hopwood, Andrew Ogden, check out his excellent Picture of the Scene podcast, Michael Webb, Laura Hague and Sarah Button. Thank you all so much for your support. I'm delighted that support for the podcast this week is from Harry's. As you know, I've used their products for a number of years now, and I highly recommend them. Now, you have this opportunity to both support my podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. This comprises an expertly engineered weighted handle, one five-blade cartridge, which was crafted by artisans in Harry's own German factory, complete with precision trimmer, a handy foaming shave gel, perfected lubrication, and a travel blade cover for life's adventures. To get your hands on this great Harry's trial set, all you need to do is cover £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Podcast and have your trial set and a free night lotion delivered to your door. That's harrys.com slash podcast. Why not do it right now? Today's episode is brought to you by Noom. You know, for me, maybe for you, and most people that I speak to, the scales aren't the reason we want to lose weight, are they? For me, it was about getting into sailing again and having that energy, frankly, to be able to do so. Noom's psychology approach just works for me. It's intuitive, and that, that just works. I can I can work with that. So, for example, I just make sure I don't shop for food when I'm hungry. I don't diet during the day when I know that I just want to snack all night. You know how it is, don't you? Did you know that so far, has helped more than 3.6 million people lose weight? It's incredible. And active Numas lose on average 15 pounds in 16 weeks. And 95% of customers say weight is a good long-term solution. One of the reasons for that for me is it just takes five minutes of your time every day. Five minutes, that's all. So what are you waiting for? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noon weight psychology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noon.com slash UKTCpod. That's noo dot com slash UKTCpod to sign up for your trial today. Okay, so let's set a bit of context for today's story with our guest the month of the year game. Top of the UK charts was Elvis versus JXL. With you want to sing it, don't you? A little less conversation. Hello, In the US, at the <laughs> in the US at the summit was Nelly with "It's Hot in Here." And in Australia, at number one in the album charts was the M M&M M Show from you guessed it, M M&M. M. In the news this month, multi-billionaire Steve Fossett became the first person to fly solo around the world non-stop in a balloon. French President Jacques Chirac escaped an assassination attempt unscathed during the Bastille Day celebrations. Bartenders doing tricks with fire, started a major fire in a nightclub in Lima, Peru, but it killed 25 people and injured over 100. The Commonwealth Games, hosted by Manchester, were opened by the Queen and the UK two primaries. John Taylor, a 46 year old postman from Bramley in Leeds, was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of 16 year old Leanne Tierman. Leanne was last seen alive in Leeds city centre on the 26th of November 2000, and her body was found in the Yorkshire countryside nine months later. Police believe that Taylor may have been responsible for other unsolved sex attacks and murders in the Yorkshire area, and the trial judge warned Taylor to expect to spend the rest of his life in prison. Did you guess the month and year? It was July 2002. Today's story comes from Bournemouth on the south coast of England. The place you hear nothing about all year until the heatwave. And then the mail and all the papers post numerous pictures of young women in bikinis enjoying the sun. It's always Bournemouth, isn't it? What's so wrong with Cleethorpe's? It was July 2002 in Bournemouth, when 26-year-old Korean student Jong-Ok Shin, who was known to her friends as Okie, had been walking home for a night out to celebrate finishing exams. She had been in Elements' nightclub, who know the area, it's now called Cameo, with friends she'd made at university. It had been a good night, and Okie enjoyed the lively student social scene in Bournemouth. She was popular with her fellow students. After all, she was kind, caring and fun to be with. And now she had almost finished her time studying in Bournemouth and it was time to move on to the next adventure. As always, Oki's group left together and with their safety in mind, they walked home as a group, dropping each other off at their homes one by one. Oki was the last one in the group, but she just had a really short distance, a couple of minutes, to make it to her home alone. If you know the area, she lived just past Molesbury Park Road, but Oki never made it home. At about 2.50am, she was violently stabbed just metres from the safety of her home and left the dead on the pavement where she lay. The occupants of a nearby house heard arguing between a male and a female, piercing screams of disturbance and then a woman's voice moaning. Some heard what sounded like a person falling against the car, One of the residents raced outside to find Oki and called an ambulance. She was rushed to hospital, but her injuries were so severe that she died later that morning in hospital at just 26 years old. Before she died, despite the obvious pain that she was in, she managed to tell medics that she'd been attacked from behind and that the person who attacked her was a man in a mask, adding, I ran off and saw my own blood. These were the last words that Oki ever said. The post mortem found no defensive injuries, no signs of a prolonged struggle, and it was believed that Oki had been stabbed unsuspectingly from behind three times. If the three stab wounds were in quick succession, there'd have been little opportunity for the attacker to have been contaminated with blood. The blade used in the attack was likely to have been single edged and at least 14 to 15 centimeters long. Oki had not been sexually assaulted, and her purse and mobile phone were still in her handbag when she was found. There was no forensic evidence to be found at the scene, but residents did mention hearing an argument between a man with foreign accents and a woman. Another resident reported a vehicle with a very loud exhaust had revved up and raced off at about the time Oki was attacked. But this later turned out to be another person living nearby. And despite numerous appeals for information in the media, there appeared to be no leads from the police. But at this stage, detectives were looking at people in the Korean community in Bournemouth. And their first real potential suspect was Oki's Korean ex-boyfriend. she had broken up from him earlier that year, which had devastated him. As it's understood that he felt this relationship was one that was likely to end in marriage. Had he killed Oki? He was arrested, interviewed, but detectives were happy he had nothing to do with the murder, so he was released and allowed to head home. He actually headed back to Korea. Then six weeks after the murder, a man was arrested. Omar Bengar, on suspicion of murdering Oki. How had Bengar been identified as the killer? It had been about a month before his arrest. When a woman called, well, for this podcast we need to refer to her as BB, she was caught shoplifting in Bournemouth. When arrested and interviewed, she revealed plenty of information about herself, including that she had a serious drug habit—crack, heroin which she funded through sex work and also drug dealing and other minor crimes. She told how she had known Bengar for about a year, as he too had a major heroin and crack addiction and she often saw him at a crack house on St. Clemens Road, where they regularly bought their gear. She told how in the days before the murder, she was in a Richmond Arms pub with a group that included Bengal and another man called Nicholas Gubadamosi. They talked generally about Korean girls being pretty, and having, I quote, tight pussies, and about a particular Korean girl, I quote, they wanted to find. On the day of the murder, in the early hours of the 12th of July, she was in her car and dropped another addict on Charminster Road. As she pulled away, she heard shouting, and she saw Bengua, Kibadamosi, and another man called Delroy Woolry. She told how they made her stop and asked her to drive them to the crack house on St Clemens Road. As they made their way there down Marmfree Park Road, B.B. saw a small female figure walking down the street, and Bengua shouted out from the window, look at the on that. The men told her to pull to the side of the road, as they said they wanted to get the woman to party with them. So she stopped a little way down the road, and all three went in the direction of the young woman. When they got back in the car, Bibi saw that Bengua had blood on his t-shirt, and so she assumed he'd been in a fight, which was pretty standard. Of the chaotic lives these people were living. She added that she didn't actually see Oki being stabbed by Benguar, but assumed that he was the murderer, because when the three men returned to the car a few moments later, she saw him with blood on his t-shirt, wrapping up an object in a towel, which she now assumed was a knife. She said he put this into a shopping bag and stored it under a seat in the car. Benguar and Kibadamo's told her that handbag snatch had gone wrong and they got into a scuffle. After stopping at the crack house, Beebe took the men to a cul-de-sac where she claimed that all three raped her. From there, they went to a flat where Ben showered and changed into a t-shirt. She dropped him outside another flat and took the other two men to the nearby river at Ifford. After she'd parked the car, they went off with their carrier bag and she didn't know for sure what they'd done with it, but she assumed they'd thrown it into the river. Bibi said she was terrified by the events of that night, and she knew that all three carried knives. She also felt in some way responsible for what had happened, as she'd given the men a lift in her car that night. She was scared that she might be stabbed or killed, as might her daughter. And having been a drug addict for so long, she said she did not trust the police, But after her arrest for shoplifting, she began giving hints to police about who was responsible for the crime. However, there were major questions about her reliability. Was anything she was telling them true? Not least due to her drug addiction. And she began by telling a very different story, based on roughly what she said, but with some very significant changes. At first she told police that a man called Ricky Thompson was responsible for the murder. She said all sorts of other things that were untrue such as different names and claiming there was a police chase on the night. As she said, she did this as she wanted to give the police an idea of what happened without admitting that she was with the people responsible as she was scared. But after interviewing BB, police found several other potential witnesses from the addict community and they backed up what BB had been saying. Several gave evidence that Bengua attended the two crack houses in the early hours of that July morning in 2002. One of the managers at the crack house recalled Bengua and Gabudamosi in her flat in the early hours. Moreover, she recalled that Bengua had blood on his hands and was looking for a change of clothes and a female addict recalled how Benguar had told her that he had stabbed a student in Charminster. The woman found a top splashed in blood, and he said something had gone wrong. Detectives began to look more into the life of Oman Bengar. He'd certainly been struggling with his major drug habits, which had seen him make some poor choices and pick up a number of convictions, over 60, including one case of stabbing a man, and another of threatening a person with a syringe. Bengua was arrested on suspicion of murder, and he denied killing Oki. He admitted that the heroin abuse had affected his memory, and he wasn't quite sure where he was at the time of the murder. He knew being in a nightclub earlier that evening. But he denied being in the car that night with BB, telling someone that he'd stabbed a woman, and also the rape of BB and the other accusations that she made against him. Detectives thought they had their man, but I wonder what you make of the fact that no forensic evidence was to be produced by the police, linking Omar with the rape of BB or the murder. His DNA wasn't to be found on BB's car. Oki's blood wasn't on the clothing recovered. And no murder weapon was found. So essentially, the case depended on seventeen witnesses, twelve of whom had a serious addiction to crack and or heroin, a group who are vulnerable, unreliable and known for telling the authorities just what they want to hear for obvious reasons. Another factor I find a little odd is that the third man in the car, according to BB, Delroy Woolrie, had been deported to Jamaica and was not extradited back to the UK to face the charge of rape or to give evidence about the murder of Oki. Surely as one of the three men that detects his belief was present when she was killed, he had to be there, didn't he? Both Guber de Mosey and Benguar stood in the dock. Bengua accused of murder and rape and his co-defendant accused of assisting a murder and rape. At the end of the trial, the jury cleared de Demosi of rape, but were unable to reach a decision on all the other charges. So in 2004, a retrial took place. During this trial, it was shown that Guba de Demosi had been caught on a speed camera during the time that Bibi had alleged he had raped her. And by the end of the trial, the jury acquitted Benguar of the rape charge and Gubba Demosi of assisting Benguar in the murder of Oki but the jury were unable to decide on the charge of murder. So in 2005, a third trial took place, and this time the jury found Omar Benguar guilty of murder. For this, he was sentenced to life in prison, with the judge telling him, this was a wicked crime. Poor Oki Shin lies dead. Her family must mourn her terribly. From everything we've heard, she was a lovely and kind girl. But for the courage of a number of your fellow addicts, you'd have walked free, and you very nearly did. In my view, on the evidence presented to this court, you are a totally nasty piece of work and a very dangerous young man. And Detective Inspector Kevin Connolly, Dorset Police, in charge of the investigation, said, I would like to welcome today's outcome on behalf of of Opie's parents. Today's verdict represents the imprisonment of a very violent and dangerous offender whose sexual desires drove him to murder Oki. Many witnesses from the drug world gave evidence as they were appalled by Bengua's crimes and I would like to personally thank them. Omar Bengua has now been imprisoned, which I hope assists Oki's family to come to terms with their tragic loss. Two appeals failed. And as we talked today in October 2022, Bangor is still in prison. But though he was found guilty of murder by a jury, the third jury, is he guilty? Many, an increasing number, are not so sure. Let's first examine the thoughts of journalist Ronald Monroe, who made two documentaries about this case. The first one was called Unsolved, The Man With No Alibi. Speaking to the justice gap, she said, I believe there has been a serious miscarriage of justice. It is clear to me that convictions are not safe. I looked at what got him convicted. I realised there was a murder committed by potentially three men, a vehicle was involved, a crack house and disposal of evidence. There is real cause for concern when there is no CCTV, forensics or DNA linking this man or any of the men to the victim, the crime scene, the car, or to the main prosecution witness. Not one of them managed to leave fingerprints on anything. 13 witnesses gave evidence against Bengua, and Bronner talked of the similarities between these statements, saying, There is a pattern of behaviour around the statements that I thought instantly was wrong. Straight after the murder, None of them had any memory of the event or anything suspicious. Then around May the following year, almost all of the witnesses who ended up giving evidence in court suddenly have a miraculous memory of that night. That's not possible. They were junkies, self-confessed addicts, and for them, one day ran into the next. When you actually track down their evidence, it didn't make any sense. In another interview The Justice Gap, Bengal's solicitor, Des Jensen, says the following. The witnesses I have spoken to have retracted their evidence. This is hugely significant, and you have to ask yourself, where did the information that found its way into their statements come from? It didn't come from them. When I first picked up the case, my initial impression was this was a miscarriage of justice And everything that I've read since then, everyone I've spoken to, and everything I've seen, only further convinces me that my initial impression was the right one. This is a grave miscarriage of justice. In addition, there is now CCTV, potentially, of Omar Benghwar at 10pm on the night before the murder, leaving the nightclub, and there is further CCTV of what looks like another crucial sighting of him, later in the early hours, and if that is the case, he is in a location which means he absolutely could not have committed the murder. And who do you believe more, the witnesses who a year later remembered exactly where they were, or the evidence of Benguar, who said that he couldn't remember for sure where he was on any night? Since the trials, some more things have come to light one is a very odd appearance from B.B. on the Jeremy Kyle show. Although she was in witness protection, she chose to out herself publicly by appearing on this TV programme. In 2007, in a magazine article about her involvement, B.B. now said she saw Bengua stabbing Oki, and she said she contacted the police four or five days later, which wasn't the case. And in the appearance on the Jeremy Kyle show in 2008, she again repeated that she actually saw the stabbing, before adding that she saw Bengua with the knife when he returned to the car. So effectively, the star prosecution witness around whom the case has been built has now suddenly recalled details which were surely absolutely vital, and she told her things which hadn't been part of her earlier accounts or her evidence at three trials. In 2012, she told the police that payment for the magazine article was just £500 and she didn't get paid at all for the Jeremy Carl show. She said she knew she'd not seen Benguar stab Oki, but she'd come to believe that account over time, whatever that means. This evidence was part of the body of evidence put forward on behalf of Benguar in his second appeal. Let me quote the response from the appeal judges to it. There were already numerous credibility issues at trial arising from B.B.'s lifestyle, admitted lies, changes and inconsistencies in her account. However, the submission is that her post-trial false accounts went to the incident itself and were qualitatively different. Had the jury known of them, it is likely to have regarded her evidence with significantly greater circumspection. And might not have relied upon her. Without her, the balance of the evidence was insufficient. But despite this, and the other inconsistencies that arose after the third trial, where Benguel was found guilty, the appeal judges still rejected this appeal. Was this the right decision? Well, you and I didn't see all the first hand evidence to say for sure, but I do tend to agree very strongly with those who suggest there are more than enough doubts to question this conviction. Let me just pose three more questions to you. Firstly, where was the mask that Oki told medical staff that the man who attacked her was wearing? Bengua wasn't wearing a mask. Secondly, there were representatives from the Korean embassy in court for all of the trials. Was it politically important to find somebody guilty? And finally, if Jong Ok Shin wasn't killed by Bengua, then who did kill her? There are lots of options, including, incredibly, a potential serial killer on the streets of Bournemouth on the evening that Oki was killed, who had killed other women. And in the concluding part of this story next week, we will look at him and all the other potential suspects. Thank you so much for listening to this much-delayed episode of the UK True Crime podcast. I hope my slightly bunged-up nose and weird voice hasn't thrown you too much. Please join us at the Facebook group to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show, please join us at patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So until we speak again on Tuesday, that's Tuesday, not Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever, it's Tuesday. Please do take it easy and try to avoid this lurgy. It really is no fun. And most of all, despite all the others, please do stay classy. Cheerio for now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.